Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to episode six of the Gen Z GOP podcast. I'm John Olds, and I'm alongside my co-hosts, Mike Brodo and Ryan Doucette. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about climate and climate change. Uh, the environment is an issue that is you know, very important to a number of young voters. Uh, according to a Washington Examiner survey taken Earlier this year, right before the world turned upside down, 77% of young right-leaning voters believed that climate change is important. And I think that's a good jumping off point for our episode today. And we'll be talking about a number of uh, other public opinion surveys uh, regarding young Republicans and the climate. This week, we had an exciting week at Gen Z GOP. Uh, the, the, there was an article from CNN that covered our launch and the work that we're beginning to do to reshape the Republican Party. Um, and, and I think it kind of clarified some of the misconceptions about our organization, uh, namely that this isn't about an election. And our mission really begins after November 3rd, as we begin to reshape the party to bring in a more diverse set of voices that appeals to younger voters. And finally, I want to give a warm welcome to my friend and our guest today, Kira O'Brien. Kira is uh, someone I've known for almost two years now. Uh, we've worked together in a number of capacities. And uh, welcome, Kira. And I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Thanks for having me on today, John. And thanks for that little intro. Um, yeah, so my name is Kira O'Brien. I'm the founder and president of Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends. I just graduated from Harvard College this past May, um, and I'm about to enter grad school at Columbia, uh, deferred due to COVID to next August. Um, a little bit about me, I was born and raised in Ketchikan, Alaska. I've been a Republican uh, since I was politically conscious, um, and I chaired the Harvard Republican Club while I was an undergrad. That's awesome. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about your experience in Alaska and how uh, you got to care about the climate specifically? Totally. I mean, growing up in Alaska is a very unique experience, um, particularly um, interacting with folks who grew up on the East Coast. Uh, every day, like after school, we'd be hiking or going on a fishing trip or hunting. Everybody was just outdoors all the time um, and very much like involved with nature. Um, I also, my island that I grew up on is in the middle of the largest rainforest in North America, the Tongass National Forest. Um, so you could say we were very much immersed in it. Um, and inherent with that um, comes the understanding that the world is changing around us. Um, so for me personally, one of the most vivid memories uh, is looking out at the water, the ocean, um, when I was about to head off to college and seeing that it had turned Caribbean blue. Um, now in Alaska, the ocean is supposed to be kind of a steely gray. Um, it's kind of cold there. It's like 35 to 55 and raining year round. Um, so this Caribbean blue was both beautiful and also very, very wrong. Um, and so that kind of got me curious about what was going on with the climate around us. Um, and that led me to start asking some questions. I didn't really get involved with, uh, the policy until I was president of the Harvard Republican Club, but Alaska is definitely what got me curious. So your your background obviously in, informs your your advocacy. And 
as as you know, as a young climate activist, there's a lot of there are a lot of different conservative groups. They're smaller at this point uh, that are starting to talk about the climate, and I think that is sort of in the same vein with the Gen Z GOP mission, where we're kind of rapping on the door saying, hey, uh, you guys should really care about this because you're going to lose a lot of young <laughs> voters if you uh, if if you don't get your act together on this. So I guess um, before I turn it over to, to Mike and Ryan, uh, would you be able to talk about where you um, stumbled upon the Baker Schultz plan? Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, so definitely agree with you that there is a growing discussion among particularly young conservatives about climate change. Um, and this discussion is growing on the right and the left, but it's newer on the right. Um, for me, the Baker Schultz plan was the first thing that I saw about climate that didn't see, seem completely crazy. Um, like I said, I grew up in Alaska, um, where uh, the idea of federal oversight on anything um, when you're 5,000 miles away from Washington, D.C. and living off the land, it just sounds completely crazy. We reject it as much as humanly possible. Um, so a top-down kind of uh, solution or like something like the Green New Deal would never go for me. Like that never, that would never work for me. However, when I was talking to people about the discrepancies I was seeing between conservatism at home, which is very much oriented around community and nature um, and all of that versus the stuff I was seeing on the East Coast, which is very financial, um, financial basically. Um, we were talking about like what works to kind of bridge these gaps. Um, and in that capacity, I stumbled across this TED talk by Ted Halstead of the Climate Leadership Council. Um, and he kind of outlines his vision for a plan that brings all sides to the table. And but when I say all sides, I don't mean just like left and right. I mean, left, right, um, independence, businesses, uh, big oil producers, uh, big energy producers, but also like the Nature Conservancy um, and other like mainstream environmental groups. Um, so for me, this was like a very powerful way uh, to have a dialogue about solutions. Um, and also like it's an economically focused plan endorsed by the largest statement of economists in the history of the field of economics. Um, so its credentials are absolutely rock solid. Yeah, Kira, that's awesome. I looked into the Baker Schultz plan, I think started about a year ago. I've been reading more about it. Do you mind just providing a brief overview for our listeners who might not be familiar totally. with it? Um, so there's four pillars in this plan. Uh, the first is a revenue neutral, gra gradually rising price on carbon. Um, so that's implemented on high emitters. Um, so if you are a company that is uh, drilling for oil, uh, if you're a coal producer, or uh, if you're Schneider Electric, like a huge um, sorry, energy company um, that is in the business of manufacturing um, or producing energy, you'll be paying a gradually rising price. However, all the money that is raised by that price is then distributed to the American public as a dividend check. Um, so that cuts out the political middleman, um, which causes so many problems in our increasingly polarized space. Um, so you're not leaving it to Congress to say, like, on the left, like, what are we going to do with this in terms of social welfare? Or on the right, like, are we going to do tax cuts? Like, uh, instead, it's just giving it back to the consumer to choose how best to insulate yourself to frankly, a changing energy landscape that's coming whether we like it or not. Um, 
And in return for that price, um, what you would do then is repeal redundant energy regulations. Um, so specifically regulations on carbon emissions. Um, so that would not be anything to do with methane or other greenhouse gases, um, but anything that is redundant and is covered under the price that is applied uh, market-wide. Um, and then the fourth pillar is what makes it particularly appealing as a conservative, uh, very aware that American leadership is important, uh, but not a singular fix on this issue. Um, we would do what's called a border carbon adjustment, which ensures that countries like India and China, which actually are producing way more emissions than the United States when it comes down to it, uh, would also be complying with um, emissions reductions globally. Um, and what that means is we'd be uh, setting up a World Trade Organization compliant, um, it's called like a carbon club. And so you would have no import or export fees with any um, country that has a comparable price on carbon. And so it's encouraging other countries to adopt comparable prices on carbon. I really like a lot of the, you know, points that you're bringing out and talking about, because I think that's, you know, the right path moving forward. But like, how do you deal with like the stigma surrounding your plan in the sense of like many people hear like a carbon fee or a car carbon price, and they just think it's like another effect of like big government, you know, and a liberal idea, um, even though it's includes businesses, but like, how do you push back against the notion that, you know, people are going to see economic disadvantages because of it. I mean, first off is just the simple fact of uh, the authorship of the plan. Uh, the plan was written by James Baker and George Schultz, who were two absolute giants of the intellectual movement in the Reagan administration. Um, so it is a conservative authored plan first. Um, it has bipartisan backing, of course, uh, but it is a conservative plan led by conservatives. Uh, the second part, I mean, about the pricing, um, the reality is, if we're going to solve big problems, we need to be able to understand nuance. Uh, if you're unwilling to look into something more deeply than surface level, we're probably not having a real dialogue anyway. Um, so the reality is, is that hard problems will be solved with complicated policy generally. And um, yeah, that's just a reality of our political moment, of our advanced age, um, and about political partisanship today. Um, the people who are going to be solving climate change are not the fringe people on the right or the left. They're the people in the center who are going to be um, seeking common ground, not necessarily making concessions, but seeking common ground. Yeah, so I, we're talking about fringe groups on the right. Obviously, we want to push back against them. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on on the left. Mm -hmm. So the Green New Deal's pushed a lot by people our age. A big mission at Gen Z GOP is creating Gen Z activism. And while we respect activism that's put forth uh, in terms of productive policy discussions, there's groups like the Sunrise Movement who we firmly disagree with in terms of what they're pushing. So can you speak a little bit about the Green New Deal, why we should not be embracing that plan? I think at face value, I think the plan is just completely not feasible and actually is more of an economic overhaul sliding toward a big government left-wing approach. But also I think it is prohibiting bipartisan dialogue on climate because when people on the right, especially older people, look at our generation and look at us talking about climate change, they just assume that we're like the Sunrise Movement, that we're promoting these radical Green New Deal policies. So I actually think it's not productive in terms of discourse because it actually hurts our argument and makes the climate movement look like a sham. So can you talk a little bit about that uh, in the Green New Deal itself? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I um, am obviously not a, a proponent of the Green New Deal by 
any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we bill the Baker-Schultz plan as kind of the Republican rebuttal to the Green New Deal. Um, a few thoughts on that. I mean, the Green New Deal, obviously, it's not a comprehensive policy solution. Like you said, it is an economic overhaul um, and should be avoided at all costs. Um, as a policy wonk, additionally, it's frankly, it's a resolution. It's a lot of like moonshot ideas, but no actual solutions to get us there. Um, even if that was what you were seeking, it's not a productive model. Um, however, one of the things that's been really interesting about the rise of the Green New Deal uh, is what it has done to the dialogue. Like you mentioned, um, it has had the downside of making uh, the, I guess, elder generation of Republicans even more wary about climate action than they were before, if that's possible. Um, because the assumption is that we're pushing something um, like the Green New Deal. The reality is quite the opposite. Uh, in fact, market mechanisms are decreasing in popularity among these fringe left groups. Um, and again, this is another one of those things where we, we need to be better people in marketing. Um, we need to be selling this kind of plan that's an actual alternative. Um, so that means like comprehensive emissions reductions, which is something that the Baker-Schultz plan would yield. Uh, that's an essential thing that we should be highlighting um, as far as what a plan like the Baker-Schultz plan that harnesses market mechanisms could be offering. Um, but then like there's the other side of that, which is the Green New Deal has, for better or for worse, um, pushed climate further into uh, the minds of the U.S. Congress. Um, what we saw during the American healthcare debate, and this is basically my worst fear on climate, um, is in the American healthcare debate, what we saw is that if one party is offering a solution to what the American public has decided is a problem, they will sooner take a bad solution than no solution. Um, that's what happened with repeal and replace. Um, we didn't have anything to replace with, so they weren't just going to repeal. Um, and that's what I worry could happen with climate if we don't have a comprehensive plan introduced by Republicans. Um, and so that would be the left saying, hey, here's the Green New Deal. You guys are saying to me, you, the American public, are saying to me uh, that there is this climate problem, which is what the polling is telling us. Um, but if the Republican Party does not offer an alternative to that, we run the risk of the American public saying, sure, fine, Green New Deal, whatever. So, Kira, back uh, about 70 years ago in, in February, you and I were at CPAC together. <laughs> yes. And, um, and spent a lot of time at the, uh, the booth. Uh, of your organization. And I just wanted to ask you, because you, you brought up something really interesting about uh, older voters, older Americans, older conservatives are now even less receptive to talk about the climate because of these things like the Green New Deal. Um, can you talk about your experience at CPAC engaging with those, that type of voter and and even just the conservative activist in general? Yeah, totally. Um, so as mentioned, uh, we were a sponsor of CPAC this year. We had a booth um, down in the hub, um, and we had the opportunity um, in that capacity to talk to I don't know, probably a couple thousand people who had attended CPAC. Um, so that, that's probably, that demographic is split between like probably half younger people under the age of 25, um, and then half like progressively getting older folks. Um, and it really was so fascinating to see the split between uh, those two demographics in the conversations that we had. Um, the people on the right who are younger, who would come up and talk to us, 
Um, it was very much, it didn't matter if you were a Donald Trump stan or a Donald Trump hater. Uh, they all very much understood that climate change was real um, and that we should be doing something about it at the federal level. Um, and so those conversations were very productive. We weren't convincing anyone of the science, really. Like there's, it was very much like, okay, this is a solution. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, the older folks, though, um, <laughs> hostile would be a word that could, um, I guess, describe some of the interactions. Uh, and that's kind of fitting with a lot of my experience. I've been working in this space for about two and a half years. Um, yeah, and I think I think that hostility comes from a few places. I mean, one, the Republican Party hasn't really touched this issue in 20 to arguably 30 years. Uh, that's a long time to just be silent on something. Um, and so that's not going to like be an easy like flip overnight. Um, and then the second reason is like once you realize that there is a problem as Republicans, as people who care about the next generation, uh, as people who have kind of like a moral look at the world, you're basically required to offer some sort of solution. And I think that's a lot of the frustration um, with the climate dialogue on the left is it's just been our house is on fire. Like, what are we going to do? The globe is burning. Like, OK, no, like, sure, the climate is changing. This is a serious problem. We should be doing something to fix it. But what are we doing to fix it? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's like a little bit of like how we need to change our messaging, um, focusing more on solutions than just talking about the problem. So when I talk to some of my friends on the right that are Gen Z voters about this specific plan and other carbon tax and dividend plans, there is some pushback. And I wanted to address that here to see if you can maybe address some of their concerns. So what people are saying is that if corporations are forced to pay a carbon tax, it's kind of the same thing as a tariff. They just pass that increased input cost onto their consumers and raising prices. So what I'm gathering and what my friends are gathering from this plan is that we offset that by providing dividends and these types of payments that are part of this plan to the consumers so that they can now still afford the increased costs. So I get that part. But what I'm trying to understand here is we are trying to disincentivize carbon usage from corporations. So it just seems like we're inflating consumer prices. So if we're implementing this carbon tax, they pass it on to consumers, consumers can now pay for it, but that doesn't mean that we're not inflating the prices. Yes, the consumers can still afford that, but the prices are still going up nonetheless. So we're trying to tax the inputs, but then we're trying to respond on the demand side. So what I've heard as a critique of this is that what if we just implemented the carbon tax and then also offset that cost on the input side as well, maybe by reducing the corporate income tax. So for example, how I like to put this is that carbon is a negative externality. It's a bad thing. We shouldn't want it. We should tax corporations on that, whereas corporate income is generally a good thing. That's how the workers get their wages. So what if we reduced corporate income taxes in order to counter this increased cost temporarily so that they can adjust in terms of the carbon tax. Now, over time, I know the carbon tax will increase and that will force them to eventually comply. But I just don't see what the incentive is for the corporations to reduce the carbon if they can just continually pass off that tax to the consumer and then the consumer can just keep getting more and more dividends to the point where the consumer price index is through the roof. So I don't see exactly how we're fixing this input and output problem. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about 
how this inflation aspect works. So to be clear, um, this is not a gas tax, nor is this a tax on corporations or their labor. Uh, This is a price per ton of carbon emitted. So if you're a business that has a diversified portfolio, um, that being something um, of like older, like fossil fuels, but also something like clean energy, uh, green energy, all that stuff, um, you would be paying less than a company that is uh, just entirely like pure fossil fuels or uh, stuff like that. So there are things that can be done. Basically, the idea, I guess, behind the Baker Schultz plan is uh, it's giving these companies regulatory consistency, um, which is completely crucial to research and development. Um, So just to give you like, I guess, a little bit of what the landscape has been for these businesses for the past couple decades, um, you have a democratic administration that comes in and puts in a bunch of top-down heavy regulations saying what they can and what they cannot do at a very like micro level. Um, So that's basically like the clean power plan under the Obama administration was the attempt at that. So then you have Donald Trump come in and he has basically repealed the entire clean power plan. However, what most people don't understand about that is these corporations that are producing energy are already clean power plan compliant by and large. Um, So this has created actually an uneven playing field for these companies because now they're hedging their bets. They're saying, uh, do we know the outcome of this election? Okay, well, if Joe Biden wins, it's likely the clean power plan will come back. If Trump wins, we have four more years of no clean power plan. And then what happens in the next four? And then the election after that? That's not any sort of regulatory environment that is good for business. So what we're saying is scrap all of that regulation. Instead, use a market mechanism, place a price on carbon um, based on emissions per ton, and then allow businesses to understand the escalation rate, build that into their research and development, um, and then innovate the technologies of the future. Because what we're hearing now on the right is at least finally an understanding that innovation is what will get us out of this mess. Um, The technologies of the future are what will solve climate change. It's not anything right now that you can point at. And that's also as a tangent, I guess, the risk of subsidies is you pick the wrong industry as your winner. Um, Because subsidies are basically, green subsidies are basically the government picking winners and losers in industry. and then returning to what I was saying before, um, we don't we don't know what will solve this problem yet, but we do know that American innovation can get us there. Um, so the price on carbon is a consistent regulatory environment for these businesses, and that's why they favor it so much. Thanks, Kira, for kind of clarifying that and how like moving forward with car- like a carbon dividend would you know affect corporations and businesses. And like I'm obviously you know excited about the idea as it will include businesses, not really negate from their successes. So like we've seen in Congress, similar plans, obviously they are different than the plan that you envision. Um, But we've seen them get sponsored and co-sponsored by, you know, bipartisan crowd. And to me personally, I'm kind of like empowered by this in the sense that, you know, some people on both sides are taking this seriously. But I do want to hear kind of like what your differences with your plan is compared to like either Carlos Cabello's bill or like Ted Deutsch's bill that both have been introduced in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Market Choice Act, which Congressman Cabello introduced, I believe, in 2018 or 2019, um, is probably one of the more comparable ones to us. 
um, in how it implements the carbon price. Um, however, what is done with the revenue is the primary difference between that bill and our bill. Um, so the revenue under our bill would be returned to the American public as equal, probably quarterly dividend checks. Um, so that's uh, money in the pocket of the American consumer to make uh, either responsible environmental choices or honestly do with it whatever you want. Um, we're not going to tell you what to do. Um, yeah, so the revenue is the primary difference. And for us, again, that's very important because it cuts out the political squabbling. Um, so the bipartisanness of the bill, uh, while you might get a couple people um, on just any old like run-of-the-mill climate bill, um, we think that the power of our bill comes from uh, the fact that there's no arguing over where the revenue goes. Um, and that's what makes the political, um, I, I guess that's what gives the dividend so much political staying power um, and makes it such a promising way forward. So th the idea of the dividend is really uh, interesting to me. And, and when I first read about this plan, I thought to myself, oh, wow, you know, that's um, that's similar to what um, a program in Alaska is, um, and, and you can probably speak more to that. Um, but also, the idea that you're kind of greasing uh, the skids, so to speak, but um, but you're you're kind of smoothing out that transition into a more green energy dominant um, energy landscape. You know, you you know, we can't just say overnight, you know coal and oil, see you later. Uh, we're not using you anymore. We're going to be solar, wind, nuclear, uh, you know, whatever it may be. So how, how w when, you know, if I'm an average family, how, how do I get affected by this dividend? Am I, am I coming out ahead? Uh, am I having to deal with an increase in costs from my energy? You know, how does that work? Yeah. So um, like you mentioned, I'm very familiar with the dividend concept due to the permanent fund dividend, uh, which Alaska residents receive. Um, since I was born and raised in Alaska, I've been receiving the dividend check since I was born. Um, and that, that money, in the case of Alaska, is revenue that's generated by um, basically like licensing for companies that are either drilling for oil or mining or things like that. Um, so it's very much tied to natural resource development. Um, and that money is what put me through college, to be honest. And so it makes a huge difference for families. Um, and the modeling that we're seeing um, out of the U.S. Treasury about the Baker Schultz carbon dividends plan um, indicates that a family of four could get up to $2,000 per year. Um, and so obviously, like basic economics, that has an immense impact on particularly lower income families and middle class families. Um, $2,000 a year is nothing to sneeze at, particularly when we're talking about energy transition, um, which does have the risk of being less equitable to lower income and middle income families. Uh, and that's why I'm particularly so passionate about the dividend being a part of this plan, um, because I've seen what that can do for a family um, and what a difference that can make. So we've heard a lot about the benefits of the Baker Schultz plan. And I obviously understand those benefits, but let's say hypothetically, like is the Baker Schultz plan the end all be all, or is there like a similar direction, maybe a few different components, but like a similar direction of a plan and bill that you would also get behind Kara? I mean, for me, honestly, the Baker Schultz plan is the 
top of the line gold standard for me as a person who cares about emissions reductions, um, as a person who cares about the future of the Republican Party, uh, cares about bipartisanship, um, but also the energy transition. Um, however, yes, I mean, there are components of the Baker Schultz plan that could be taken in isolation. But really what I would say is it's the package that makes it politically viable. Uh, what we're talking about is a comprehensive plan to reduce emissions that could foreseeably come out of the Republican Party um, and have bipartisan support. That is a huge step. I mean, we're not talking here about um, layering a price on carbon on top of existing regulations, which would not be great for the economy and would probably not yield any um, Republican support, rightfully. Um, we're talking about a comprehensive plan that understands that you're putting the price on carbon. In exchange, you remove redundant regulations. You're also taking care of the American consumer while allowing them to make their own choices. And you're holding India and China accountable for their own emissions. Um, and so really, it does, it does work as a package. Um, and that, that's the political dance that we're doing right now. So we're talking a lot about these plans, and young Republicans are very much mobilized on this issue. But how do we get Republicans that are currently in office to buy into this? Is it just the threat of electoral defeat when young voters continually defect from the Republican Party because of climate? Or is there something else that we should be doing to mobilize and really make sure that Republican lawmakers start to embrace climate and free market solutions? I mean, a large part of it is, frankly, education. Um, a lot, like I said, this, this issue has been pretty quiet for Republicans for 20 to 30 years. Um, so you're not going to find very many members in Congress who will remember the last time they had a Republican knock on their door and say, hey, what are you doing about climate change? Um, so making sure we're doing those kind of things, making sure we're bringing it up, it's not so much, I mean, yes, it is definitely the electoral threat, uh, but that's always going to be looming um, for the Republican Party um, if we continue on this path that we're currently on. Um, but I think the more immediate component of it is, uh, getting in front of legislators and saying, hey, like, I am a conservative and I'm climate concerned. Like, what are you doing about that? Um, and kind of demanding the dialogue, um, but also just saying, like, you're admitting now that climate change is real. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to, like, do you have a plan? And if not, like, let me talk about one that I like. Um, and that's not even me saying, like, you need to be saying that about the Baker Schultz plan, uh, but just saying, like, this is an issue that we care about, um, and also specifically climate, not conservation only, um, because a lot of Republican members have gotten very comfortable with conservation, um, and emissions reductions are separate but intertwined with climate or with uh, conservation. So, hypothetically speaking, if someone listening would want to get involved in Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends. How would they get involved and what could they do when they get involved to like, you know, help push the bigger Schultz plan? Yeah, um, hit us up on our website, which is yccdaction.org. Um, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at yccdaction. Um, yeah, and when you're involved with us, I, we do everything from education to advocacy. We're a 501c4 organization, so we do meet with members of Congress. We uh, write letters. We go into offices, uh, but we also do work on campuses. We work with anyone uh, who identifies as young, um, hopefully under the age of roughly 40, um, and definitely people on the right. And that will just about do it. Um, as we... 
mentioned earlier at the top of uh, of the episode, there's an enormous amount of energy and concern among young Republicans and young conservatives about the climate. And at Gen Z GOP, as always, we want to create a platform for people to exchange ideas on different policy areas, whether it's taxes, whether it's income inequality, whether it's issues of race, immigration, trade, or climate. We want to bring people who have been thinking about this stuff to our platform to discuss it. And I think that's exactly what we accomplished here today with Kira. Um, and as mentioned before, um, there's a lot of polling data on this. And I want to end with my favorite statistic, uh, again, from that Washington Examiner survey from early 2020 that says 53% of liberal voters would consider voting for a Republican if they had a semblance of a climate plan. Let's think about that. That's insane. These aren't even like this is the issue of climate goes so much deeper than any sort of partisan uh, landscape or political compass. This is an issue that's extremely practical for a lot of people, whether you're seeing the ocean in Alaska turn blue or whether you're starting to see your sea levels rise or affecting, you know, in Massachusetts, it affects the fishing economy and the fishing industry. Um, that's that's obviously very important to uh, our coastlines here. It's important. And it's not just Republicans or Democrats that care about this. It's it's hardworking Americans that are seeing their life being turned upside down because of irresponsibility. So with that, I want to thank Kira. And as always, you can visit our website, genzgop.org, or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, we just got off MySpace because we wanted to reject the notion that we are a PSYOP for Bill Crystal. And uh, that's a wrap. Have a good week. Oh,